to you. And uh, so enjoy that. Um, so uh, anyway, so we are starting, we're continuing our series in Confronting Christianity, and we're in week three. And this, is, uh, this talk is entitled, How Can We Trust the Bible? I think I, t- here we go, let me turn this clicker on. How Can We Trust the Bible? And uh, sometimes the Bible is hard for Christians to believe. You may have encountered Christians, even Christians that have a, have a difficult time believing parts of the Bible. And because parts of it can sound like a fairy tale. Uh, there's miracles. There are difficult sayings in the Bible for us to have to follow and pattern our life after. And if it's difficult for us as believers to really trust the Bible, then how much more so for someone that's not yet a believer? Every Christmas and Easter, there will be TV specials. You may have seen some of those. There's magazine articles in the stores. And uh, they're discussing questions like, you know, what can we really know about this Jesus of Christianity? But what's interesting is that no one ever tries to say that Jesus didn't exist. I don't think anyone really goes that far. Even the most committed atheist scholar wouldn't say that. Usually they might say something like, you know, the Gospels, they began as these oral traditions, and they were passed down over the years, and they eventually got mixed in with some legends. And when they were finally written down, it was impossible to know what's historical and what's not. So who was this Jesus, and that's the debate that they get into many times. They might uh, liken it to the game Telephone. You guys have played the game Telephone. You guys play that, I think, even during Impact season, uh, where you, you, you say something to someone, you pass around the circle, and of course, we all know that little kids, they change it intentionally because they, they know the game, and so they want to make it funny, so they do that. But in real life, if you pass around the message in around a circle, it's probably going to change, be edited some, and you're going to have a completely different message when it gets around to the next person at the, at the, at the end of the circle. So they, these scholars will say things like, that's kind of what happened with the early manuscripts or the early texts that, that uh, we don't even have the copies of the earliest texts anymore. So they, they, they presume that it was like an ancient game of telephone where things got passed down, legends got mixed in, and we really can't know fully who this Jesus was in antiquity. So some propose that Jesus, the real Jesus, was simply a good teacher who stirred up some trouble, and he was executed for it. And they'll say that after his death, there were these different parties that were formed, and these viewpoints emerged among his followers about who he was. And so those that thought, some thought he was just a good teacher, good man, maybe a prophet. Others began to start thinking that he was was God, and that the, the, the people that thought he was God, that party won out, and they began creating writings that promoted their views. That's kind of like the secular scholarly take on how the Gospels came to be. And they will say that his followers, they will say his followers did all this to gain status in the Roman Empire. There's really two problems with that because identifying with Jesus, identifying with Jesus often led to persecution and death, not raised status in the Roman Empire. And why would these disciples give their life for something that was a lie? Why would someone do that? It's always amazed me that there are so many scholars out there in the world whose life work has been trying to prove that something isn't true. So why would they work so hard at that? Why are these, why are these scholars working so hard to prove that Christianity isn't possibly true? Because I would say, because if it is true, then it changes everything. It does change everything. So 
and that's why they're in the battle. I don't think you necessarily see like other kinds of religions, people on the other side trying to prove that their religion isn't true necessarily, but you get a lot of that with Christianity, and we'll talk more about why that is as we go. So today we're going to focus on the Gospels, because if they are true, if the Gospels are true, then the Old Testament is confirmed because Jesus affirmed the Old Testament in the Gospels. He was a Jewish rabbi, so a Jewish rabbi would have known the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and we believe that Jesus, he taught the Old Testament in synagogues in that area, and so we believe that if we can get back to the Gospels and affirm the truth of the Gospels, then in those stories, Jesus affirms the Old Testament is true. So we will, we will focus on the Gospels only today. Now, there's a guy named Bart Ehrman, who is a pretty well-known guy among academia, and he's a New Testament professor at UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and he's one of the most probably famous guys that will go debate people. He's a person that was raised in the church, would, would have said he was a Christian early on, later rejected the faith, and now he has committed his life to kind of debunking the truth of the Gospels. And one of his big things is debating other believers, and he likes to get into debates about how can we know what the Gospels really said about Jesus. And so he does not claim to be a believer today, but even Bart Ehrman, who is now maybe an atheist slash agnostic, doesn't say he believes in the God of Christianity, he will still say this about the New Testament. The New Testament Gospels are the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus. This is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. This is a person that does not believe all that's in the Bible, New Testament especially, but he still says this about the New Testament. He's that confident that it is the best document out there about Jesus. And he does think that it has some history to it. So he rejected the faith of his youth and one of the most outspoken critical scholars against New Testament and Christianity. And um, again, no one even tries to argue that Jesus didn't exist. That's not even really a debate. And so today we're going to ask the question, how can we know that the Gospels are reliable? First uh, main point is the Gospels are written too early to be legends. And we'll spend some time on this first point for sure. Now the Gospels are written we believe, 40 to 60 years after the, the death of Jesus. But many secular universities will say, they'll push it way later and say it's over 100 years. That's what they will say. But Paul's letters, we know, were written even earlier than the Gospels. So when you look at your Bible, you often think that the first thing that you see in the New Testament, you're like, that must have been written first. Not necessarily. The books of Paul, we believe, were the first things that were written, even before the Gospels were written. So 15 to 25 years after Christ, uh, after his death, we believe that Paul's letters were written. And his writings, Paul's writings, still contain information about the miracles of Jesus, his teachings, his crucifixion, his resurrection. All that's in there in the epistles as well, just 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. This means that the biblical accounts of the life of Christ were circulating around within the lifetime of hundreds who'd been present in his ministry. So why does this matter? Well, if the Gospels are written when these eyewitnesses are alive, well, people can investigate. They can raise questions if people are making claims that aren't true. And so in Luke chapter 1, 
verses 1 to 4. And this is from the Message Bible because it's a little bit worded a little bit more clearly for you. And uh, this is the opening section of Luke. Here's what it says. So many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of Scripture and history that took place among us. Using, using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. Since I've investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. Now, as you read that, what does it tell us? Well, before Luke wrote, um, other accounts are being written down, and these accounts were from eyewitnesses. And these people are still alive when these accounts are being written down. So Luke goes and he investigates these accounts. It says in close detail. And who's he writing? He's writing to this person named Theophilus. Don't have time to get into who this is right now, but he's a person. So it's, it's, it's written, of course, for the church worldwide. But it's a letter. It's like a letter to this person, Theophilus. I'm like, he must have thought a lot of Theophilus to basically write Luke and Acts to this dude, whoever this dude is, right? And uh, so why is Luke writing? Luke is writing so that Theophilus and others can know the reliability of what they've been taught about Jesus. So he's already being taught these things by others, but Luke puts it all together in this document so that Theophilus can have confidence that these eyewitness accounts about Jesus were accurate and correct. Now, a little quiz for you. A lot of times we think of the, the four Gospels. We always tend to think that those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that all four of those people were part of the 12 disciples. But which two of the Gospels were written by people that were not part of the 12 disciples? Can you guess? You can use the process of elimination. So just go Matthew. Was Matthew a disciple? I see some like heads nod, but you're like hesitant. Was Matthew a disciple, one of the disciples? Yes, right? He was a tax collector. Remember the tax collector? He was a disciple. How about, um, how about Mark? Was he a disciple? No, he was not. Well, we believe it's John Mark, actually, is the name, the official name for him. And then we have, uh, so Matthew, Mark, there's Luke. Was Luke one of the disciples? No, he was not. Um, and then we have John. We know he was uh, the one who Jesus loved, right? So we know that he was a disciple. So Luke and Mark are the two that were not actually part of the 12 disciples. Now, some might believe that that makes the Gospels less believable. I would beg to differ and say the opposite is true, and here's why. Because Luke is acting like a reporter would today. So you know how whenever a reporter goes and and they gather facts about a big event. And, and they might get multiple sources, multiple eyewitnesses. And they get those sources and they collect them like Luke did. And they begin to write out the story based on multiple eyewitness accounts. And they put it into a document. That's what a journalist often does today. And this is what I think Luke is doing when he writes the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. Now, you think of it things like, like events like 9-11 where we have, of course, video footage. We know that now. But if we didn't have video footage of, of what took place there, and you had multiple accounts of eyewitnesses of what took place there, and then someone coalescing that into a whole, into a document, even if they weren't the ones that witnessed it, you can see the accuracy would come through of multiple accounts 
And this is kind of, I think, what Luke is doing when he composes the book of Luke. And so Luke is like, kind of like a skeptic himself, writing to skeptics. He is a physician. I'm not sure what a physician did back then, right? Like what kind of treatments they had for stuff, like here, here take these, uh, these two pills and call me in the morning. I don't know how that worked back then. But he's a physician of some kind. So he's educated. He's not like an, he's an intelligent guy. This is Luke. And then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, where it says, for, this is Paul writing, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So these letters that Paul is writing to the churches, these are for public reading in those churches. They're meant to be read aloud in a congregation kind of like this. Now, someone cannot write that over 500 witnesses saw the resurrected Christ many of whom are, who are still alive, if that didn't happen. They can't write that if it didn't happen, if those people are still alive. This goes against the idea that the Gospels were passed down orally and that they evolved over time, because you can check with the witnesses and say, well, Paul's writing this, and these people, if, they, if this didn't really happen, they'd be like, no, that, that didn't happen. These are eyewitnesses that he's claiming to have that are still alive at this time. So Paul is saying, don't take my word for it. Go investigate it. Go ask the people that were these eyewitnesses. But it wasn't only Christ's supporters who were still living, but many public officials and bystanders, even opponents of Jesus who heard his teachings, they were still living at this time. They saw his actions, and they watched him die. So they would have had, they would have, they would have had a special interest in putting down things that weren't true, if those things were not true. And then uh, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is referring to King Agrippa. And he says this about the king. He says, For the king, Herod Agrippa, knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So when Jesus did all that he did, when he said all that he said, when he was killed on a cross. These are things that happened in public view, in, in front of multiple different kinds of people. Some were believers, some were not believers. But it's not like it happened in some secret desert location where nobody had access to what really took place here. It's pub, very public. So all that happened to him was not done in secret, done publicly for many to see. So Tim Keller, in one of his books, he writes this. The New Testament documents could not say that Jesus was crucified when thousands of people were still alive who knew whether he was or not. If there had not been appearances after his death, if there had not been an empty tomb, if he had not made these claims, and these public documents claimed that they had happened, then Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. The hearers would have simply laughed at the accounts. So a few a couple years ago, I read this article. I came across this article, and it was a weird title. It was confusing for the title. And the title was um, Christianity, the World's Most Falsifiable Religion. And I was like, is falsifiable really a word? I don't even know if it is. But it was in the title of this, of this article. And I just thought, 
is this guy writing against the faith? And so I began reading this article. Then I realized, wait, he's not actually writing against. He's writing for the Christian faith, and here's why. He goes on to say in the article, the central claims of the Bible demand historic inquiry as they are based on public events that can be historically verified. In contrast, the central claims of all other religions cannot be historically tested and therefore are beyond, there's that word again, falsifiability or inquiry. They just have to be believed with blind faith. I know it's a lot of big words in that quote, but here's what he's getting at. He's saying the Bible can be historically tested because it, contain, it claims to contain real events and real people and real circumstances. I don't know that other religions make those same kinds of claims, or if they do, it might be like one person going out and claiming to have some kind of revelation. And they come back and say, hey, I got this revelation. And it's just their word versus like, who, who else? Like nobody else. And that might be what they claim to be revelation. But other religions don't make the kind of claims that Christianity makes. And so they can't be tested in this historical way. So he's getting at this idea that Christianity has this way of, of sticking out its own neck to the critique of historical analysis. And if, it, if, if Christ truly was not put on a cross and wasn't truly resurrected, it would easily be disproved if it was false. It'd be easily disproved if it was false. So uh, there's a video I want you to watch. It's two minutes long. It's by uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. And he talks about how the, the confidence we can have in, in, this, in these, these first stories, these first accounts of Gospels of the story of Christ because of the distance between the events themselves and the writings, the dates of the writings. Here's this, uh, William Lane Craig. I often hear students say, well, you can't know anything that happened 2,000 years ago. And what they fail to understand is that the crucial gap is not the gap between the time of the evidence and today. The crucial gap is the gap between the evidence and the events described by those evidence, that evidence. If the gap between the events and the evidence for those events is short, then how long it has been since the evidence in those events to the present day is just irrelevant. Good evidence doesn't become bad evidence simply because of the lapse of time. And with regard to the New Testament, when we look at the evidence, what we discover is that these records of the life of Jesus were written down within the first generation after those events while the eyewitnesses were still alive with people who had first-hand contact with those who would accompany Jesus during his lifetime. So that we actually have better sources for the life of Jesus of Nazareth than we do for most of the major figures of antiquity. For example, take Alexander the Great, the great uh, Greek uh, conqueror. Our earliest biographies, earliest sources for Alexander the Great come from Arian and Plutarch 400 years after Alexander's death. And yet, Greco-Roman historians still regard these uh, records as uh, fairly trustworthy accounts of the life of Alexander the Great. The fabulous legends about Alexander didn't arise until the centuries following those two authors. And contrast that to the New Testament, where we have uh, books and records that are written within the first generation after the events while the eyewitnesses are still alive. So I think that we have very good evidence for 
the life of Jesus of Nazareth, very trustworthy evidence, and how long it has been since that evidence till today is simply irrelevant to the reliability and trustworthiness of that evidence. So our first point we're trying to make is that the Gospels are written too early to be legends. The second point is the Gospels show the flaws of the disciples. So when you're reading the Gospels, like pay attention to the things that stand out to you. Like if, if these were made up accounts, then why would these disciples or these apostles that are allowing these things to be written about themselves, why, if you think of, if the Gospels are made up, then why do the disciples look so clueless, slow, jealous, petty, even cowardly sometimes in the accounts of the Gospels? So all of Jesus' disciples at some point, they abandon him, right? We know that all of his male disciples abandoned him. The, the ladies probably stayed around. They were like, no, no, we believe he's really, really God, you know. Uh, but we know as a, in the gospel accounts that they abandoned him. The men did, at least some of the men did. Uh, Peter, one of his closest disciples, denied him three times in those accounts. One of them was known as, what, Doubting Thomas. So if you're, if you're doubting, if your name is Doubting Thomas, like Doubting wasn't the name that his mom gave him, just so you know that. Uh, but that was the nickname he got because he was a person that doubted a lot. So that was his nickname. He's known as Doubting Thomas. So if you're that guy, would you be like, hey, guys, if we're making up the story, can we, like, leave that part out? Like, don't make me the doubter. Like, I don't want to be that guy in the story. That's not what, that's how you would probably approach it. If it's a fake story, you're not going to let those kind of details get into the story about yourself if they're not, in fact, actually true. So we, we see this, this pattern in the lives of the disciples, many of them, where they, they didn't look like rock stars in the Gospels, right? Um, if it's a made-up story, then the disciples would not have put those things in there, allowed those things to be put in the, in the story in that way. Now, why would someone make up something like a crucifixion if it didn't happen? That would have portrayed Jesus as a criminal. So it's not helpful to their cause to put, put him up as a criminal if, if, he's not, if he wasn't truly crucified. So crucifixion was used many times by Rome to put down political rebellion and they would often crucify the leader of a movement, but usually what would happen if they did that is the followers would either just give up or they'd go find a new Messiah. This happened before. So instead, the followers of Jesus claimed he resurrected from the dead, and if that was false, it could have easily been proven to be false. But instead, many of them died for this belief that he, he was killed and then resurrected. And if it wasn't true, why would they die for a lie? Why would, they die for, why would they die for a lie? If it's all made up, why fabricate that the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ were women? This is a really important point because in that day, sadly, uh, women were not treated very well. They were demeaned in that culture, and their testimony wasn't admissible in a court of law. So if people are making up this story about Jesus, it, it wouldn't make sense to make women some of the first witnesses because you're not going to sell that story to the populace. They're not going to buy it. And so if you're inventing a story, you're not going to make that part up unless that part actually happened. And so we believe it for that reason. Now, the third point is that the Gospels are too detailed to be legends, but this is kind of a detailed analysis, but just follow me on this. This is a comment that C.S. Lewis made over the years. Uh, but he made this point that he said modern fiction, like the kind of fiction that you're used to, how many of you guys like to read novels? You like to read fiction? Raise your hands. A few of you do. Now, what happens when an author today writes fiction, they write lots of details to create this picture, this scene that you just see in your mind 
and they just like map everything out for you. And, and so modern fiction is, is very realistic, very detailed, but this kind of writing is fairly new in the last 300 years. When people wrote myths, like ancient myths back in the day, the writing wasn't like that. They'd focus on bigger ideas and not get into like the details of every little thing in those ancient myths and those writings. But when we open the Gospels, we see some details. Like in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is asleep on a cushion in a boat. The text tells us that. In John 21, Peter, it says, is 100 yards out in the water. He sees Jesus on the beach. He then jumps out of the boat, and together they caught 153 fish. Exactly, apparently. And then John chapter 8, there are some men who catches this woman in, in adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and he begins writing something down in the dirt. These are the kind of details that would not be included in ancient writing if it was fictional. That kind of writing wasn't done until the last 300 years or so. And so that's just how we, we understand ancient writing in that time. So the only reason for such detail is if it truly happened. So the reason we have focused this morning only on the Gospels is because, is because of this one point, the resurrection. I love how this works out because we, we sing like two songs about the resurrection, and they had no idea where I was going with this sermon. But it all comes down to the resurrection because it all comes down to that question is, did Jesus resurrect or did he not? If Jesus didn't resurrect, then Paul says our faith is in vain. And so if you're a skeptic, if you're not, not yet a Christ follower, I would encourage you to explore the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You know, people often get sidetracked by these, like, side issues. We'll get into things like, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm fine with the idea of Jesus, but, you know, I mean, Christians are hypocritical, the church is hypocritical, and that's true. That is true of us. And, and so they say, well, I, I can't believe all that because of, of Christians and how they are. It's like, okay, hang on. Are you saying that because Christians can be jerks sometimes that Jesus couldn't have raised from the dead? Is that really what you're saying? Or they might say something like, you know, I just can't believe um, in, like, what Christians say about sexuality. And so they'll take that issue and say, I just can't believe that. And they might be, like, okay with the ideas of Christianity. And, um, but, okay, let's break this down. Are you really saying because you can't hold to the, the Christian sexual ethic? Are you really saying that Jesus couldn't have resurrected from the dead? And so you see how if, if you're going to take, if you're gonna take the issue with Christianity, take issue with, like, its central theme and central focus, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And let that be the thing that you wrestle with and, and figure out if you want to follow Christ or not. You know, um, sometimes I've heard Tim Keller use this analogy. It's, a, it's an idea of a swimming pool where there's a shallow end and a deep end. And we know if you jump into the shallow end of a pool, you're going to get scraped up pretty bad. Uh, this happened to me when I was a freshman in high school. It was the last day of school, and we had this, like, party at this uh, park in our city, and there's a big water slide, and, and everyone's excited. It's the end of school, and it's, it started a summer, and uh, this water slide, like one of those tube rides, you know, you just get on this, this crazy tube ride, and, um, and I'm going down this tube ride, and I'm, like, I'm on my stomach. You know, there's no, like, it's no, like, no raft. You're just on your, on your body on the, in the water, and... Uh, and what happened was you're supposed to go down, like, not face first, but I didn't really follow the rules back then. And so I, I go down face first uh, down this slide, 
and the, the, the pool's only three feet deep. And I don't know what happened, but something like I hit the water and it's like it forced me to go down so fast in three feet of water. And I hit my head on the bottom of that pool so hard um, that I'm seeing stars. I, I thought I'd like blacked out. Um, I get up out of the water, I have blood like pouring down my face. Uh, it shaved the top of my head. Um, it hit my nose, hit my mouth. My face is all scraped up. And so long story short, uh, one of those moments where you're like, I could have broken my neck in this accident and been changed forever, but God spared me of that. Um, but when you, when you jump into, if you, try, if you try to jump into a shallow pool, uh, you're probably going to get scraped up like that. And so Tim Keller uses this, this analogy, this picture. He says, if you dive into the shallow end of the biblical pool, what he means by that is taking on some like sidetrack controversy or something you just don't really like about the Bible or about Christians, and you get sidetracked on this little kind of shallow pool issue, and you say, that's what I'm going to make my issues about with Christianity, then if you kind of dump into the, if you jump into the shallow end of the pool, you're probably going to get scraped up. But he encouraged you to jump into the deep end of the pool where the issues like the deity of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus and his crucifixion, like where those kinds of issues reside. Because when you jump into that part of the pool, that's where you find safety. That's where, you, that's, where you, that's where you should be wrestling with things is there, not over in the shallow end. It doesn't mean that the shallow end issues aren't issues or shouldn't be talked about. But start with the deep end stuff, the really, 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 really important stuff, and settle the question, do I really believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins and resurrected on my behalf? Do I truly believe that or not? And then you wrestle with that, and then everything else, I think, will kind of sort itself out. As you realize that if Jesus has the authority over life and death, where he was able to resurrect from the grave, then surely he has authority over my sexuality. Then surely he has authority uh, to say to me, you know what, being a part of the church is difficult and hard, but you still should be part of the body of Christ because it it is the best thing for you. Surely he has the authority to tell me that. And he can, he can, he can lead me into being a, a Christ follower. Now, um, I think it's, uh, there's a quote by Gary Habermas I want to read to you as we close. And it says, there was something different about Jesus' disciples. Christianity is the only major world religion whose early disciples were willing to die for the belief that their religion's founder had been resurrected. Moreover, his resurrection was the very center of their message. No event of this nature is found anywhere in the other major religions, and certainly not when one asks for good evidence that it happened. You guys are going to head to your breakouts, and so you guys, I think, know where to go.